0: so far and now if you would join me in Acts chapter 16 as you can tell we're going to get through a good portion of chapter 16 today. Acts chapter 16 verses 16 to 34. We will not read the entire text at the beginning but I have three truths that I want you to see from this passage that I trust will encourage you. But to give you a little bit of background let me remind you that Paul and his team had tried to go into Asia Minor up to Bithynia. In both times, the Holy Spirit expressly and very clearly forbade the team from reaching out with the gospel to those two specific areas because God, in his perfect wisdom, and his perfect timing, had a very clear direction for them. So they go to Troas, and in Troas, Paul is given the Macedonian vision and realizes this is where God wants us to go, across the sea, Uh, to this area of Macedonia. So they sail across and they get to the port city and there is a 10 mile road from there to Philippi, one of the most important cities in that region of Greece at that time period. But it's interesting because when the team had discussed what God's will was after this vision that, that Paul had shared with them, they assuredly gathered that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. And you will see how that clear direction of the Lord strengthened them in a time when it looked like everything was falling apart at the very reason they were called for ministry was being shot down by the enemy. And so my first point this morning is that Satan is opposing or satanic opposition to the gospel ministry. Satan always resists the advance of the gospel message. Look with me if you would, in verse 16. And it came to pass as we went to prayer. Remember, this is the prayer meeting down by the riverside, okay? The river was a mile or so from the city of Philippi. Lydia, seller of purple, and some other Gentile women who were God-fearers seeking after God are meeting there for prayer. And Paul and his team previously had gone and for a while been sharing the gospel with them. Lydia believed in her household and they were baptized. So now there's a group of believers still meeting down by the riverside for worship. And as they were going there uh, to worship the Lord together, a certain damsel, a young lady possessed with a demon or a spirit of divination, met us, which brought her masters much gain by sooth telling, which would be fortune telling. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this she did many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out in the same hour. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas, drew them into the marketplace under the rulers, brought them to the magistrates. There were two magistrates saying, these men being Jews, to exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs, which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. Remember, they were in a Roman colony. Remember that many that were citizens of this city of Philippi were veteran Roman soldiers, and that all who lived in Philippi had the rights of Rome given to them. And so this is a very Roman colony here. And so they bring that out, and we're we'll going to talk about why in just a minute. In verse 22, the multitude rose up together against them. The magistrates ran off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and saying praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. I want to talk about the satanic op- opposition to the gospel we are warned of this in Ephesians chapter six, for verse eleven and twelve, the Bible says, Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. Or that ye may be able to stand against the wilds of the devil, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. God has given us the armor to fight. He gives us the grace to empower us to wield that armor. It's not like, remember when David was going to go up against Goliath and Saul said, here, try on my armor. And, and, and David said, it doesn't fit. I haven't tested these. I can't fight Goliath in this. I'm not used to this. I don't know how to wield this armor. That is not true for us because when God gives us this armor, he who indwells us, I'm talking about believers now, we who've been born again by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we now have the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who is our teacher. And we have the armor of God and God strengthened us in his grace. And like David says, he teaches my hands to war, but not a physical war against a physical enemy, but we are in spiritual warfare. And if we're going to do something for God, and remember that our theme for this year comes from Nehemiah chapter four and the people had a mind to work. And remember that as the people rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem so that the worship of God could go on unimpeded and the people of Jerusalem could be in safety and could be without distraction as they worshiped Jehovah God at Jerusalem. That they had Sanballat and Tobiah and a whole bunch of other enemies around them, opposing them, trying to intimidate them, seeking their harm, wanting to kill them, wanting to discredit their leader, Nehemiah. And folks, if we're going to do something for God, we should expect satanic opposition. Now, folks, we're not asking for it, we're not taunting the devil. We should not have the attitude of that little song that says, and if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. You ever seen that in children's church or Sunday school? Okay, because the devil is a formidable foe. But greater is the Holy Spirit who indwells us than he, Satan, that is in the world. And yet we should expect a powerful enemy, Satan and the demons, to oppose when we do work for God. Bible says in first Thessalonians chapter two, verse 18, wherefore we would have come unto you, even I Paul once and again, but Satan hindered us. We see here satanic opposition, this abused girl, this damsel that was possessed with a spirit of divination and her masters got much gain, great profit through her saying or her fortune telling. The girls, the, that, that girl was only wanted for her what she could profit them. They didn't care a thing about her welfare. Today, we see the same thing in things like child trafficking and in pornography, where those who promote that, those who produce that, don't care anything for the victims that are involved in that. They are only out for profit. They don't care what happens to that person. And folks, when God would allow us to come across people who have been so amused as this girl was. May our, may our hearts be grieved. May our hearts go out with compassion. May we share the love of God through the gospel with them to see them gloriously saved. There are people all around us who are, who are enslaved by sin and they have been blinded by Satan. And they are being used of Satan to oppose the gospel. We must remember, just like I believe Paul knew, this girl was not the enemy. Even though she was being used by the enemy, she was not the enemy. The enemy was the demon that was possessing her. When you study out people who were possessed of demons throughout the scriptures, those demons always victimized those that they possessed. In Mark chapter nine, there's a father who comes to Jesus and he says, my my son is possessed of a demon and and sometimes it tries to throw him into the water or into the fire to destroy him. And that's a very common thing. The maniac of Gadara in in Mark chapter five, he was running through the tombs. He was cutting himself. He was crying and screaming. He'd been bound with fetters and chains and, and he would break those fetters and chains. He had no peace. People are afraid of him. He had all the torture that that demon could pour out and that legion of demons could pour out upon him until Jesus came. And so demons were always doing destructive things to their victims. This girl was miserable. And I find it interesting that these men profited greatly by the soothsaying of this demon-possessed girl. Isn't it sad That people will listen to the words of charlatans but reject the truth of God's word. But I want you to understand that these were only fortune-telling tricks. Demons may be master illusionists, but they cannot perform miracles. They don't know the future. There's never a time, you see in the scripture, when a demon wanted to be cast out of its victim or its host. If this demon could foretell the future, really could foretell the future, this demon would have been able to tell that Paul was going to cast him out of this girl and would have avoided, not taunted Paul. This demon did not have the power to tell the future. The demon mocked Paul and his team, seeking to discredit him either by association or by sarcasm. You remember even that there were times when Jesus would cast out a demon before he'd cast him out. That demon would identify Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And Jesus would silence the demon because God is not going to receive praise from the demons. And he's not going to allow his glory to be tarnished in any way by association with that which is diametrically opposed to him. Paul was grieved at this girl's state because of the satanic attempt to torpedo this gospel ministry. But I want you to see something interesting here. The Bible says, and thus she did many days. You don't know why? Why is it that as Paul and his team, not only were they going to prayer and having this Bible study and discipling these believers, I think that there were opportunities for them. And we already see that when Linnea believed that she also went and she evangelized her whole household and many of them believed and they were baptized. And I believe that now these people who have tasted of the grace of eternal life, their sins have been forgiven. The light has shined in their hearts. They have a new understanding. They want to share that with others. And I believe that Paul and his team, along with these new believers, are going throughout Philippi, trying to share the gospel. Wherever they go, here comes this damsel discrediting them maybe chasing away people or maybe causing people to not take them seriously and just ignore them why is it that the first time she did that that paul didn't turn to her and cast the demon out the first time according to this language he wasn't just grieved on the day when he when he cast this demon out he was grieved. he was grieved for her and for what was happening through the whole process But I want you to see that this is God's sovereign timing because miracles are never brought about at the discretion of the human agent. The apostles did not say, hmm, I like that fellow right there. I think I'll heal him and choose who they wanted to heal when they wanted to heal. Or remember that when Paul and Barnabas were preaching to Crispus the gospel, this ruler, that Elymas was opposing them, and Paul turned and said, You're gonna be blind for a season. Paul didn't do that of his own initiative, the Holy Spirit told him to. Because the power was not the apostles, the power was God's. They were God's instruments, they were handpicked by Christ, and Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, empowered the apostles at God's timing, at God's will and his prompting for them then to perform these miracles. So for whatever reason, every time this demon-possessed girl had been mocking them and pursuing them, though Paul is deeply grieved in his spirit over every time this happened, the Holy Spirit again did not empower or allow Paul to cast this demon out until this very day. And folks, sometimes... We are so burdened, we are so grieved, we are facing opposition, and we don't understand why things are going on. But God's timing is always perfect. I want you to see the false accusations. These greedy, selfish men, when they saw now that this girl, that the hopes of her of their prophets were gone, what did they do? Attend to her needs? Take her to a hospital and get checked out to make sure she was alright? no all of a sudden they turned their venom and their anger against paul and silas and the team they stirred up the local prejudice against jewish people remember there was not even a a synagogue in philippi you only had to have 10 jewish men within a community in order to have a synagogue and there weren't even 10 jewish men it seems to indicate that Philippi had a prejudice, a Roman based prejudice in that region against Jews. And so that's why these men say, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. They teach customs and laws, which are not lawful for us to receive being Romans. A matter of fact, what they taught was not unlawful. Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. We find that out later on in this chapter. It was Paul that wrote in Romans chapter 13 that we are to submit to the higher powers, the powers that be are ordained of God. We know that we are to, unless we are commanded to do something that clearly violates the scripture, or we are commanded not to do something that we are clearly commanded to do, we are to submit to the authority over us. Paul and Silas were not preaching a message that was not lawful for the Romans to receive. The Romans were within the city of Rome. They were very protective and there were laws about what God's could and could not be worshiped. But the Roman Empire had realized very quickly how, how these holy wars could quickly be started. And so they were very accepting and very accommodating of all kinds of different religions within the Roman Empire. And remember that Macedonia was part of the Roman Empire, but it was not part of Rome. It was part of Greece. And so what they were saying, these are false accusations. Paul and Silas were not doing anything unlawful. But they stirred up local prejudice. And then the crowd, the Bible says that this prejudiced crowd stirred up a mob. And the mob swayed the magistrates from a fair legal process of a trial to an immediate sentencing and punishment without due process of law. The mob... Then being stirred up by these two men as they drag Paul and Silas before the magistrates, the magistrates get caught up in it. And these unjust magistrates ignore the due process of the law. There was no fair hearing. There was no giving up evidence. Even much of our legal system today is based on the Roman system. They did not go through the due process of law. They believed the emotional appeal of the men and the mob, and they carried out a sentence for which they could be held accountable by a higher court later. They threw aside the dignity of their office when they commanded Paul and Silas to be stripped and beaten with rods and then had them thrown in jail. Matter of fact, the language, the Greek there indicates they themselves joined in in stripping off their robes, which was public humiliation and then having them beaten. But I want you to see the antidote to discouragement because folks, you know, sometimes we say, Lord, I am trying to serve you. I'm trying to... Raise a godly family. I'm trying to be a godly testimony at work or with my business. Uh, I'm trying to reach my unsaved extended family members with the gospel in my neighborhood. And, and Lord, I'm, I'm trying to serve in the church. And, and Lord, I'm facing the satanic opposition. And, 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 and Lord, it seems like every time I'm trying to serve you, it goes from bad to worse. And everything I try to do seems to be blowing up in my face. I mean, look at Paul and Silas. They're preaching the word of God. And, and God, they had the Macedonian vision. They knew God called them to that region, to that city to preach the gospel. And they had cast a demon out of a girl. Isn't that wonderful that this girl had the demon cast out? And I believe that she put her faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior. What a wonderful thing. And what happens? They're falsely accused. They stir up an emotional appeal, stir up a mom. The mob stirs up the magistrates and they are publicly humiliated, beaten with rods. And by the way, the Jews had a law that you could only administer 40 stripes. Paul talks about about references that five different times he received of the Jews 40 stripes, save one. They did not want to go over that 40 and thus incur the wrath of God upon themselves. So the Jews always stopped After 39, but the Romans had no such law. There are medical records of people that died from these beatings with the rods or were permanently paralyzed or disfigured from these beatings. By the way, Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, and they did not say here, hold it, we're Roman citizens. Now, there was another time when Paul was about to be scourged, and he says, are you going to beat me as a Roman citizen without a fair trial? But here, Paul and Silas, both Roman citizens, neither of them claimed the rights and the protections of their Roman citizenship, which they were for. Why? God's sovereign timing. The Holy Spirit did not allow them at that time to use that right for their own protection. Why? Because God had a greater plan in mind. And Paul and Silas endured this beating. Then they were thrust. The jailer thrust them into the inner prison. And that is a violent word in the Greek. And then he fastened their feet in the stocks. That was a form of torture because they had embedded in the floors or in the walls, they had shackles and they were purposely put apart far enough apart where you would have to stretch a person to the point of torture, sometimes pulling shoulders and hips out of joint. Now, they had been beaten with rods. They're in a filthy, stinking inner prison. And now they are going through something that they didn't have a moment's relief from being in this torturous position. And what are they doing? Look at verse 25. And at midnight... Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. They weren't whimpering or whispering. Now, if you've ever fractured a rib, you know how painful that is. You don't want people telling you jokes when you fractured a rib because it hurts to laugh. Okay? Okay. It hurts to take a deep breath. It's very painful if you have to sneeze or cough. It's excruciating when you fractured a rib. These guys probably had almost every one of their ribs fractured from these violent beatings with the rods. And yet they're praising God. And they're praying. And the prisoners heard them. And you know what? When you've been publicly humiliated, beaten within an inch of your life, and are in torture at that very moment, in an inner prison, you're not doing it to be a spiritual show-off. They weren't being hyper-spiritual or pious. This was the expression of their genuine faith and trust in God. God directed Paul and his team to Macedonia. Paul chose Philippi, an important city of that region. They were assured that God wanted them to preach the gospel in that place at that time. They saw the success which they had preferably expected when Lydia and her household trusted Christ and became disciples. Now the opposition comes. Now they're publicly discredited, humiliated, severely beaten, and thrown in jail. How do you reach a region from a jail cell? God led them there. God allowed this to happen for a reason. And they knew that God was going to somehow get the glory and accomplish his will for all of this. Even after everything they endured, being put in an inner prison where they could not be free to roam around Philippi and preach the gospel, they praised God. They sang praises unto God so loud the other prisoners heard them. And they prayed. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall and just hear what they were praying, what songs of praise that they were singing? But you know, Paul and Silas were not spiritual superheroes. Do you realize that the same grace of God that enabled them to sing praises and to pray, the same God to which they prayed, the same promises which they claimed God has given to you and is available to you and to me? There may be some, maybe you're watching by way of live stream because you can't be here because you are in the prison of a body that no longer functions like it once did. Where you may not be able to walk Maybe some are even within a prison where they've had a stroke and they're not able to speak and communicate, yet in their spirit, they still communicate with God. Maybe you're more limited because of something else, and and you feel like you're in a jail cell, and your sphere of influence and your potential for ministry is so limited because of what's happened to you and what your circumstances are. Folks, we serve the God of the impossible who is not limited by our circumstances and puts us in our circumstances to use us in an exponentially incredible way where he gets the glory because there's no way that we can do it. But I have a strong suspicion that the songs that Paul and Silas sang and the prayers that they prayed that the prisoners heard influenced them that when God sent the earthquake, they did not escape. And that's my third point that I want you to see is God's miraculous intervention to accomplish gospel ministry. Read with me beginning in verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. What would you do? Run. Number one, you've been imprisoned. There's confusion because of the earthquake. It's at midnight. It's dark. You can slip out under cover of darkness. Not only that, you have a human instinct for survival. And you don't know, but that, that jails could fall in on you and crush you to death. The doors were open. Everyone's chains fell off. They were all loosed. They could have run away. Look at this. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, drew out his sword of would have killed himself, supposing the prisoners had been fled. It would have been better for his family if it had been thought that one of the prisoners had murdered him in their escape. His family would not have been humiliated and not suffered absolutely excruciating loss and humiliation for the rest of their lives. He thought for sure the prisoners had escaped, so we want to make it look like one of the prisoners killed him. Or he tripped over his own sword, accidentally killed himself, and that's why the prisoners got away, for the protection of his family. Supposing the prisoners had been fled. Reasonable supposition. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called. This is the the jailer. He called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. Now, wait a minute. Here is a jailer used to a bunch of con men. Used to liars, deceivers, violent men who could not be trusted. And when Paul and Silas say, do yourself no harm for we are all here. The jailer believed him. That's a miracle. And then the jailer called them out and and he kneeled before them. He was used to forcing. He had thrust them into the inner prison. He had thrown them on the floor with violence. He was used to abusing prisoners and having them grovel at his feet. And now, in humility and in awe that this was a miracle of God and that these were the men of God, he comes out and he kneels down, and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he's not saying, Help me out of this mess. What do I got to do to save my reputation and my family? He was not looking for rescue from temporal circumstances. When he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What did Paul and Silas answer? Acts 16, 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And thy house. Not that when he trusted Christ, his household was automatically saved. He was like, look, we don't want to just tell you. Your whole family needs to hear this. All of these guards need to hear this. All your servants need to hear this. But he told him, he said, Hey. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. When I was four years old, Winter Haven, Florida, at the Rifle Range Baptist Church where my dad was preaching revival meetings, Mrs. Simpson, the pastor's wife, uh, was teaching children's church, and at the end of that service, she gave a come-forward invitation. It's interesting because the very passage that I did our worshipful meditation on this morning from Luke chapter 5 was the passage she was teaching on. And yet, God had been working in my heart that I was a sinner, Say, so how'd you know you were a sinner at four years old? Well, my parents were believers and, uh, and I was taught the scriptures. I started memorizing scripture verses when I was not even two years old. Well, I was old enough to speak. My dad was like, you're old enough to memorize the word of God and quote it. I'd gotten enough spankings to know I was a sinner too. <laughs> and I knew that Jesus died on the cross for me and loved me and he rose again. But that day I realized I had to make a personal choice to trust him. And so I went forward, and Mrs. Simpson took me to a little room. They had those little white wicker chairs, little cinder block classroom. We sat down. She opened her Bible, and she began to share with me scriptures that I already had memorized that I could quote. But when she came to Acts 16.31, which I knew, it was like the Holy Spirit just shown the truth so beautifully and so simply into my four-year-old heart. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And on that promise, I believed on Jesus and I had to turn left. Now, when I was 11 years old, my mom was facing cancer, and we thought we were going to lose her. I began to think back, Did I, was, was I really saved when I was four? Could I really know what I was doing? And so one night, when my dad was not traveling in meetings, we'd stayed home that year because my, my mom was so sick. I went to my dad's study and said, Dad, I'm not sure I'm saved. He took me through the gospel. He says, is this what you're believing? I said, yes, I am. He says, then do you know you're saved? I said, no, I don't. I'm just not sure. He said, well, God loves you, and God is very understanding, And if you're not sure, God wants you to be for sure. So why don't you pray and tell God you're trusting him now if you didn't before? And that's what I pray, I pray to prayer some like that, God, I know that you, Jesus, I know that you are the son of God, you died on the cross and shed your blood for me. You were buried and you rose again. And Lord Jesus, I know that I've broken your law and I deserve eternal death in hell. I think I trusted you when I was four years old, but I'm just not absolutely sure. So Lord, if I didn't trust you then, I'm trusting you now. And I wanna make sure I'm saved. I want to know you've given me eternal life and forgiven me of my sin. And you know, from that night to this day, I have not had a serious doubt that I'm a child of God. But if you were to ask me now, these years later, were you saved at 11 or saved at four? I can tell you absolute certainty, I was saved at four and got assurance at 11. But Acts 16.31 was that beautiful, simple verse that God used in my life to show me Christ and my way to have a personal relationship with him And receive eternal life. What a wonderful message of these missionaries. They were criminals. And yet they shared with him the gospel. And you listen. The bold compassion of Paul and Silas naturally followed up to reach the jailer's family with the gospel. So they had that opportunity. Look, if you would, with me in verse 32. And they spoke unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And then look at this. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. And when he brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. What a transformation. The jailer who had hours earlier disregarded their wounds and tortured them in the stocks now attends to their wounds, identifies with Christ and commits to being Christ's disciple by following the Lord and believers' baptism. He and all of his family and staff that believed. And then, look, I want to to reread verse 34. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Folks, this is a worth it moment. It was worth it. It was worth it to have the demon possessed girl follow them around. And Paul's thinking, "How are we going to reach a city when a demon possessed girl keeps discrediting us?" And then imagine their thoughts when they're dragged before the magistrates and they're publicly humiliated. Now they now they've been completely discredited, stripped naked, beaten with rods good potential that they might die of their wounds thrown into the inner prison in the stocks. Now, how are we going to reach Philippi? God sends an earthquake and the jailer and his wife and his kids and his servants and his staff get saved. Did God call Paul and his team to reach Philippi or Macedonia specifically? What was the vision, the Philippian vision or the Macedonian vision? Macedonian vision. Now, imagine this with me. And then I want to get back to the worth it moment. Because we're going to end there today. Picture with me now. Paul and Silas have led this Philippian jailer and his whole house to the Lord. Now they're going to be a part, I believe, of that church meeting at the riverside. But maybe now they use part of the jail for their meeting place to meet and to worship God. And think of this, here's a couple of jailers standing outside the jail cell, and there's this hardened criminal. Hardened criminal's brought in. Rather than being thrust in, he is respectfully ushered in. Instead of his meal just being thrown at him all over the floor, they actually hand it to him. And those jailers are standing outside these soldiers, and the one starts sharing his testimony of salvation to the other guy. And guess who their real audience is? It's the guy in the prison cell. And they're quoting verses that God used in their heart for the way of salvation and how they're rejoicing all they've been forgiven of all their sin. And and now they have peace with God and eternal life. And and imagine that here are these jailer, these prisoners hearing this day after day. And maybe when there's a change in the guard, the new guards come in and they're whistling amazing grace. I know amazing grace wasn't written then. All right. All right. Or singing, are you washed in the blood? All right, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And who knows? And man, they're singing these wonderful hymns of the faith. And the prisoners can't get away every day. They're being saturated with the gospel. They're seeing jailers that, and, 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 a, and a head jailer and a family that cares about them. never seen anything like this. And imagine how many of those prisoners over time were led to the Lord by that Philippian jailer and his family and his staff. And then they're discipled. And when they have paid their debt to society and their sentence is complete and they're released, they go back home. Now what happens when someone's released from jail and they go home? Everybody has eyes on them. Everybody's at first suspicious of them. And here these people come back and, and of course there's going to be a very critical eye on them. And they're not going to be trusted, but people are watching them closely and they know that's going to happen. And they say, hey, what a great opportunity to shine as a beacon of light for the gospel. We're going to show the transformation that Jesus made in our lives. And their lives are so different. Now, instead of stealing, they're providing things honest in the sight of all men. They're working an honest job and they're giving to meet the needs of others. And as they are, they're sharing what made this transformation. People who were violent and abusive People who've been lawbreakers now are are under the law of God and they're walking in integrity and they're they're showing, they're living according to the law of love and of the word of God. Their lives are transformed and people are saying, what does he have that I don't have? What happened to her? I've got to find out. And imagine the gospel opportunities spread all throughout the region of Macedonia from prisoners there at Philippi, one of the chief cities. Now they're spread out all through, the, through Macedonia, and wherever they go, they're starting up Bible studies, and maybe churches are springing up all over Macedonia. Did God know what he was doing by letting Paul and Silas get thrown in the Philippian jail? He does it every time. And Paul and Silas, though they had no inkling of what God was going to do, Had every confidence that the God who called them there and allowed them to be put in that jail through those circumstances was going to glorify Himself and accomplish His kingdom work through them and through others that they would reach, even in that jail. And that's exactly what God did. That's why they could praise God. That's why they could pray because they knew God had called them there and God did not call them to fruitless ministry. God has not called any of us to fruitless ministry. You say, but I don't see anything. Keep plugging away. Keep faithfully serving. Because you know what? You might not even see the results this side of eternity. But Jesus said, even if you give a cup of cool water to a child in my name, you've done it unto me. God notices everything that we do out of love for him and service to him. Every time you hand out a gospel tract, every time you stop to have a heart of compassion and pray with somebody who's having a, a difficult day, And to try to share with them the gospel. Every time you encourage a brother or a sister in Christ, every time you invest in some some need for a missionary, everything you do, God notices, none of it is fruitless. Don't give up, keep serving because God's power is not limited by your circumstance. As a matter of fact, God placed you in the circumstances you're in to greater use you. May not make sense. Go back to Acts chapter 16. But look at this worth it moment. Man, they enjoyed fellowship of a meal together. They rejoiced in God's grace together. They celebrated with the entire family and staff. Talk about worth it. I don't know if any of you have ever been out west and climbed a 14er, which is a mountain peak over 14,000 feet in elevation. Uh, I had a friend in college, and he and I would go uh, on my days off. I was doing an internship at a church um, in the Denver area. And on my day off, he and I would go Uh, Usually my day off was on Monday. So Sunday night, we'd get in the pickup truck and we'd travel and we'd make a base camp. And then the next day we'd spend hiking what's called the backside of the mountain. That is the, the less mapped side where there's not any trails and very few maps. And we would climb to the, and we were climbing to the peak of that mountain. And man, it was tough. Sometimes you are climbing and you make 10 feet up and because the air is so thin, you got to stop and you got to wait and bre- take a breath for five minutes. And you get up and you go another 20, 30 yards. And then you rest for 10 minutes. And it's like that. And it takes a long time to reach the top. But when you get to the top and you look all around you at the grandeur of God's creation, you say, man, this is a worth it moment. This is awesome. And you know what I believe that God gives us, even in this life, like he did with Paul and Silas, when they, when they sat down together over a meal and they were able to have fellowship together and he saw this Philippian jailer and his family get saved and they were baptized, they experienced the love of Christ uh, as the jailer uh, ministered to their wounds. Man, what a worth it moment. And yet in eternity is gonna be the greatest worth it moment. When we on that, I'm gonna say this respectfully on that from that perspective, that is far above what we can see now, look around at this temporal life and all of human history and even just our own personal history and ministry. And we say, Lord, you gave me the strength and the guidance to climb the mountain. And now here I am at the top and looking, I see the grandeur of your perfect will and how you worked all of these things for your own glory. Folks, it is worth it. So expect satanic opposition. We are going to be wrestling, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world. The antidote to this temporal discouragement that we want you to give up and to quit is to sing praises to God and to pray. To believe that God has put you where he's put you and he's allowed to happen what He's allowed to happen for a purpose and he will receive the glory and he will work through you if you will respond with a right humble attitude and will cooperate with him and be patient for him to work when you do God will miraculously accomplish his gospel ministry through his divine intervention and you will have worth it moments shall we pray Father in heaven, we look back on this and we know that you divinely inspired Luke to write this account for our challenging and encouraging, for our instruction. Lord, we, we don't see every trouble in life and every difficulty as being a direct attack by Satan or the demons. But Lord, help us not to be ignorant that we are your soldiers in enemy territory fighting a spiritual warfare, and may we put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil, so that we, like Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we are able to pull down strongholds and to, to cast down every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ and to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And Lord, when we face that opposition or when we face limitations and when we are greatly discouraged and wanting to quit and give up in ministry, may we remember the example of Paul and Silas who through your supernatural grace through the indescribable comfort of the Holy Spirit because they knew they were where you called them, doing what you called them to do in your perfect timing, that you were going to work and you were going to use this as you already had used them. And then, Lord, you and your divine, miraculous power intervened and accomplished your will. And so, Lord, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. It may not look the same like an earthquake, but you can move mountains, and you can transform lives, and you can soften hearts, and you can save souls. Father, my prayer today is also that if there's anybody here that has not experienced the wondrous salvation like the Philippian jailer experienced in his household because they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. May this be the day when they stopped trusting in themselves or any religious activities or good works and put their faith in Jesus, Son of God, the one who died on the cross, shed his blood, was buried, and rose again as being their only hope and expectation for eternal life. May this be the day of their salvation as they would call on you by faith. For we who are saved, Lord, the lessons resonate loud and clear. And even as we looked in our scripture reading, Paul and Silas refer back and remind the Thessalonians, you remember the abuse we suffered at Philippi. And yet they didn't stop. And you opened up all of Macedonia to them and Thessalonica is, is in Macedonia region. And so you're reminding the Thessalonians that you who are faithful to Paul and Silas and the miraculous work you did in Philippi could do it in Thessalonica. And we are reminded today that you can do that here in Snellville and Lilburn and Grayson and Monroe and Loganville and Lawrenceville and Atlanta and all of the communities around us where we are seeking to reach out with your truth. Lord, would you do a work in our lives today? May we respond in humble obedience to you in Jesus' name. With your heads bowed this morning, in a moment we'll have a song to play. You may remain seated, but let me encourage you to have a heart response to the Lord. That you would commit yourself to serving Him no matter what opposition that you would face that you would praise him, that you would pray instead of panic or instead of giving up and that you would ask God, maybe there's some specific situations, maybe it's in your family, maybe somebody you're trying to reach with the gospel, maybe somebody you're trying to minister to that is a believer, maybe they're away from the Lord and you just, you just need to pray and say, Lord, I feel so limited in what I can do in my circumstances, but you are not. God, work in me and through me in these circumstances for your glory. And hey, give that over to God today. And maybe there are some here you've never trusted Christ as your Savior or you're not absolutely 100% sure. Some of you may be like I was at 11 years old. I think I trusted Christ, but I'm just not sure. Folks, John writes in 1 John 5, 13, these things that are written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. If you don't know for sure, then why don't you cast yourself on the merciful, gracious understanding of our God and call on Christ today and make for sure. If you would like help with that, at the end of the service, I'll be back in the connection point. My wife will be back there. Uh, the other pastors will be around. If any one of us can help you, or maybe there's somebody that you know around you can, could help you from the word of God, seek them out and get that help and settle that matter once and for all. As our pianist just plays through, one stanza of an invitation song right now in the quietness of this moment would you just do business with God